Letter.com. Presented by the Paranormal King Radio Network at ParanormalKing.com. Welcome to the Paranormal News Insider for the week of January 25th, 2022. And we are on episode number 501. We're on the other side. Uh, and this is your host, as always, Dr. Brian D. Parsons. And we are live on the Paranormal King radio network at paranormalking.com. And uh, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the chat room if you're listening live. If you're not listening live... Well, you're listening to the podcast version, which is the same thing as live. You're just listening to it later, and that's okay, because I know you got things to do on a Tuesday night. Who doesn't? I know I do, of course, because I'm here behind the mic talking uh, to you. Uh, but, of course, we're out there. We're on uh, many, many platforms, as uh, you have to be in this day and age to reach you, the listener. And uh, I've said it before, uh pretty sure we're everywhere but if we're not there's somewhere that you like to listen to stuff and you can't find us let me know and i'll buy the company and uh, get us on there just kidding i don't have that much money in the prize closet but we'll figure it out we'll get the show to you one way or the other and i do enjoy everybody who's uh reached out and thanked me for uh providing the last i don't know 13 plus years the last uh, 500 episodes and people who congratulated me on that uh it's quite an accomplishment i i will toot my own horn on that it's taken quite a long time a lot of work many many years lots of typing and uh, of course uh, a lot of networks and many many years to do so so uh, thank you to everybody who reached out to me for last week's show and now we push ahead we move forward Boldly go where not too many shows have gone before. 501 now. Uh, of course, we're a few weeks into the new year. I think it's finally time people stop saying Happy New Year. I think that's over. I, I guess unless you've not seen that person yet this year, that's okay. But definitely if you're walking around work and you see somebody and you say, Hey, Happy New Year. Unacceptable. Uh, anyway, uh, events, so conferences and conventions. Uh, I mentioned uh, last week I spent a lot of time updating these lists, and looks like I got to do some work after the show. I got a few that, uh, let's see, two that are already over. That's how fast this year's going. The Hanover Tavern Paracon 2022, that was uh, last weekend in Hanover, Virginia. Don't... Uh, I don't know how well that went. I haven't heard anything about these two events. Also, the uh, Great Florida Bigfoot Conference was last weekend in Lakeland, Florida. Man, I wish I was in Florida. Got like two, three feet of snow sitting here. Uh, 20 degrees outside. Uh, Fahrenheit. Cold. Cold. But that's what I get for living in Ohio. So we also have... Uh, let's see, the next day, well, nothing in January. And the next event I see on the list is the Dead of Winter Festival. 
February 12th in Alton, Illinois. That's a staple every year. You can count on that one. Uh, usually that's the first one, but uh, this year it's uh, second on my ghost conferences, conventions list. And of course, you can find the rest of the list at paranewsinsider.com. And that's your official home of the Paranormal News Insider. Got a lot of homes for the show. This is the live radio home. And uh, really the host of the show here at ParanormalKing.com. And of course, uh, we're everywhere. Shows on pretty much every platform ever designed, created, invented. For your listening pleasure, of course. Um, But again, yeah, ParanewsInsider.com. You can click on the events tab at the top and find, hopefully, an event near you. I always say uh, we're not responsible because we're not associated with any of these events. So sometimes things, uh, you know, I, I, I miss a key or I forget to update something, uh, events update. And I don't always, you know, check all of these. So I'll be sure to click the link and check with the uh, the actual home for these events because I'm not, it's not my fault. Something's wrong. Uh, don't pay me. I can't get you a ticket. Can't get you in the door. Not for this one. Uh, been a few years since I held my own event. But, uh, yeah, check with the the appropriate website for information because these things change a lot, of course, with COVID. And uh, you never know how that's going to evolve going forward. So be sure to check in. And, and also, as I have been saying the last few months, be sure to know what the cancellation policy is for these things because you don't know what could happen for them. And I think that's it for business before we get into the show. Tonight, we've got a lot of weird stories. We're going traveling. At first, when I started putting the show together, it seemed like it was a traveling episode. Almost kind of one of those end-of-the-year kind of show feels. Uh, We're going to talk a lot of Bigfoot stuff here in the beginning. And then, of course, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite creature, the Loch Ness Monster. There's some interesting stuff about this. And I really enjoyed one of the uh, pair of stories that came out. It's uh, really kind of weird how it's tied to a lot of different things. We'll, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about how uh, maybe Nessie's not right. We've been looking at it all wrong all along. Uh, I'm going to explain crop circles. We're going to crack that open tonight. And I got a few other gems in store for you that uh, you may not hear anywhere else, any other show. This is probably, as far as I know, really the only dedicated paranormal news show on the internet. That's pretty pretty bragworthy. Everyone else does interviews. Who likes interviews? Who wants to hear anybody else's voice? Come on. It's craziness. No, I'm really the only one that's... Uh, Maybe daring enough or dumb enough to just talk news for an hour. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. So let's jump in. I've got no good segue. That's horrible. Horrible radio. Anyway, yeah, let's crack the uh, stories open with cryptid news, as we always do here every week. Talk some Bigfoot. Uh, this was an interesting story, and uh, I knew some of the things were going to pop up. I think it's uh, pretty obvious some of these things, but uh, Atlas 
Obscura published a uh, story called Great American Bigfoot Tour. And it's pretty uh, kind of actually a sad year for me. Last year, uh, 2020 was really a, actually a good year for me. It was uh, felt bad for a lot of people that were dealing with COVID and uh, losing family members and friends. And uh, I've known a few people who have passed away from COVID uh, symptoms. And uh, it's been really trying last couple of years. But 2020 for me was pretty pretty good. I actually got to travel before all this stuff fell off the wagon. Uh, but last year, 2021... I didn't leave the state of Ohio. It's the first time I can remember that I didn't leave the state. And, you know, I've known people through the years at different jobs and, and uh, just meeting people who have really never even left the state at all. So I'm pretty blessed to have uh, traveled to many countries and been able to go on cruises. And I've been to Alaska a few times and Pacific Northwest and uh, out in the Caribbean, New Mexico, and Puerto Rico, and a bunch of islands, and all these things. So, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't take it for granted, but man, it feels just weird to go an entire year without traveling or going anywhere. I did travel a little bit here in the state, uh, and I know a lot of people that have taken vacations the last couple of years. Um, kind of daring, I think. Some people, maybe it's a little irresponsible, but you know, I got the bug too. I want to travel. So this story comes from the website Atlas Obscura. And it, it's uh, what it calls a great American Bigfoot tour. Pretty cool. They should make shirts. Why not? The old concert shirts with the black sleeves, three-quarter length sleeves. I'll buy one. So this is uh, a dozen sites around the United States where Bigfoot museums and historical areas can be found. And, of course, they started off in the place that they should. I think it's a, it's a great place to start. I think everybody should fly out to Portland, Maine and start your tour. So this starts out east, uh, looks like it goes down south, and then it goes out west. Should be a good uh, – maybe – Take the motorcycle or do a tour of this or we should get it like an RV and do this tour. I think it'd be fun. So the first on the list is the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. And of course, uh, the uh, owner of that is uh, pretty well known. You might have heard of the guy Lauren Coleman. Uh, pretty well known. I, I thought he was. Guys don't know who he is. That's okay. Uh, Lauren Coleman, one of the uh, longest-lasting and most, I would say, well-known, well-educated uh, people in the cryptid field. I think there's two museums now. He's got one in Portland, and then he moved one up a little further north of there. Uh, International Cryptozoology Museum is a, it's a pretty big collection of interesting objects. It's not so much a... Uh, I guess it is a museum. It's just a lot of trinkets and junkets and lots of other uh, individual things. I'd like to get out there because I want to see. They've got uh, the uh, molt of Wessie, the snake. Remember that story a few years ago? Slithered on through uh, Maine. Pun intended. Big story. I think it was the number one story a few years ago here on the show. And if you're really 
paying attention and you look in the ICM, you'll find uh, they sell some books there, uh, mostly Lauren's books. Uh, but there's one you might spot. It's got my name on it. It's called Handbook for the Amateur Cryptozoologist. So very uh, excited to know that uh, my book is for sale in that museum. Uh, it's a good launching point. It's a great place to start. And if you're you're out, I should say down east, that's what they say out there. Uh, that's a great, probably one of the better ones on this list to visit. So it's a great launching point. And the second on the list, uh, we go a little further south. And it's the Cryptozoology and Paranormal Museum in Littleton, North Carolina. Uh, there's uh, plenty of Bigfoot casts, haunted dolls, if you're into those kind of things. And a lot of other uh, trinkets. It's the word of the night. Trinkets. And uh, it's a small town museum. Some of those are pretty cool. Things that are down and out. You just, sometimes you, you bump into things that... Uh, you never even knew existed in these small towns. I went, uh, was at the, was it the Kecksburg UFO conference many years ago as a speaker? And I stayed in a small campground and little did I know this campground was, uh, inside of the, uh, the check-in building was a huge, huge area of, uh, Exotic animal uh, skins and, and skeletons. And people were, uh, some people I, were kind of mad about it. I thought it was really cool. And I'm, you know, I'm against exotic animal hunting. But uh, the person who who did it, it was kind of explained how uh, the, the animals were taken. And they weren't, uh, most of these were taken in their native countries. And it was just really cool to see some of this stuff. And you never knew anything about it until you got there. Um, these small towns are just littered with uh, things like this, but uh, the Cryptozoology Paranormal Museum in Littleton, North Carolina, sounds pretty cool. Third on the list is uh, one I've actually been to, and it's the Skunk Ape Headquarters and Museum. When you talk about small towns, this is, uh, you got to be careful. If you're flying through Alligator Alley, you, you'll miss this. It's a blink in the eye. Uh, people are going like 70, 80 miles an hour. And you got to watch for the Florida Panthers. Not the football team, but the, uh, the uh, wait, is that the hockey team? No, that's the Hurricanes. The uh, Florida Panthers are right in this area. There's signs you can, uh, if you uh, pull off the side of the road, there's some places that you can look at signage and it says, be careful. Watch out for the Panthers, which is pretty cool. Uh, so Ochopee, Florida is the name of the town. It's a very small town. And it's actually, uh, you go down the road from this, I think it's a little further west of the Skunk Ape headquarters. It's, it's uh, another interesting site. It's the smallest post office in the United States. Very small. It's uh, only big enough for the person to basically stand inside of, and there's a a desk and they can turn around and they sell more stamps than anything. It probably keeps the, the light, the light on. It's probably only room for one light. Um, there's always a, a, just a, a line of people buying stamps from this. It's a historical place. Uh, but down the road, the other way going East is the, uh, Florida skunk ape 
headquarters museum. But you can see it uh, as you're driving. There's a giant skunk ape standing out front waving at you. Uh, there's um, some other animal um, things outside. And there's a little zoo I think you can go see. I didn't do that. I just walked around the thing and was waiting for Dave Sheely, who operates the Skunk Ape Headquarters Museum. He was out, out and about. was waiting for him to come back so I could chat with him for a little bit, get him to sign my book that I bought from him. And, yeah, I was just looked around for a while. It's a pretty interesting place. I think I bought a shirt. I bought like 10 shirts. They're all Skunk Ape shirts. Got a giant drawer full of cryptid shirts. It's uh, my thing. Um, I don't remember what year that was. A long time ago. It's still there. I uh, don't know if Dave is hanging around there or not. Number four. So now we're uh, kind of backtracking. This is kind of going the other way now. Uh, Expedition Bigfoot. Not the TV show, but a Sasquatch museum. And that's in Cherry Log, Georgia. It's a 4,000 square foot Sasquatch museum with casts of hand and footprints of purported Bigfoot, along with the uh, Many, many newspaper articles and other pieces of data surrounding the strange creature. Uh, then we move uh, along the Gulf Coast. Number five is the Honey Island Swamp in Pearl River, Louisiana. And this is, of course, home, if that sounds familiar, to the Honey Island Swamp Monster. It's a really interesting story behind that. Uh, there's a, basically, supposedly... As legend would have it, that's how we talk about stories like this. Uh, it's the offspring of escaped monkeys that mated with alligators. I don't think that's possible, but that's what the story says. Uh, that produced a giant primate creature with gray hair and yellow eyes and allegedly only has four toes. That's what makes it kind of uh, unique. Uh, so number six moves west to probably one of the more famous areas on the list. Not the most, but uh, one of the most famous on the list. Boggy Creek. I've been close to this. Uh, I haven't actually been there, but I've been right, uh, right down the road from here uh, while I was traveling once. Boggy Creek of Falk, Arkansas, home of the Falk Monster and a pretty cool movie called The Legend of Boggy Creek that came out in 1972 that is based on real events. Uh, cool soundtrack to that movie. and They just uh, did it in uh, 4K high def, I think. I haven't seen that version of it yet. <clears throat> yeah. Number seven is uh, another museum. This is called the Sasquatch Outpost in Bailey, Colorado. And the number eight here, we had the Bigfoot Discovery Museum in Felton, California. And, of course, we've got the uh, Willow Creek, California area. That might sound familiar to a lot of people. Home to the China Flat Museum Bigfoot Collection. So Willow Creek was formerly called China Flat. I don't know why they changed it. They just changed it. Uh, the area is about 50 miles south of where the Patterson-Gimlin film was shot. Probably one of the closest places you can buy uh, something with uh, Bigfoot on it. But there's places everywhere around that area. Uh, but that's probably the closest 
dedicated museum to that area. Uh, number 10 is the Bigfoot Trap in Jacksonville, Oregon. That's one place it's on my bucket list. I want to go see this thing before it's destroyed or taken away or somebody burns it down or something. Uh, the trap was actually built by the North American Wildlife Research Team in 1974 in hopes of capturing Bigfoot alive. Uh, it's a 10 by 10, uh, 10 foot by 10 foot trap. And uh, 1980, I think it was locked open because people were, you know, being people. And somebody was afraid that they somebody would get locked in there and uh, maybe not get out. Uh, but it's still there. It's still sitting along the Collins Mountain Trail in the uh, Rogue River CSU National Forest. You got to look for it. You might miss it. You could walk right by it and not see it. Uh, number 11. Uh, one of the coolest places on the list, I would say. Another place that I want to visit. Uh, Ape Canyon. Which is in Cougar, Washington. And the uh, canyon is near Mount St. Helens. And uh, Ape Canyon isn't what it used to be. Uh, after 1980's explosion of Mount St. Helens, the, uh, the canyon was affected uh, by that. So it's altered a little bit from what... Uh, what had transpired back in 1924. And this is pretty much the modern era of stories surrounding Bigfoot. In 1924, there were uh, some miners in the area that were supposedly uh, trapped in a, in a little shed, in a little building, and they were being attacked by ape men that were throwing things at them from afar. Now, legend has it as they say, that this was actually just uh, some kids that were throwing stuff down into the valley. And their voices made them sound a little different. That, I don't know which side of the story, I believe. Uh, the last location, number 12, uh, the North Folk Fork, North Fork Survivors in uh, Tootle, Washington. Uh, it's a souvenir shop at campground near the base of Mount St. Helens with Bigfoot casts and a giant Bigfoot hanging out in front made of volcanic ash. <clears throat> Interesting. I used to have a bag of ash. Uh, my grandmother at the time had uh, sent me a bag of ash from Mount St. Helens. And I remember uh, as a kid, we actually had it on, I remember wiping it off my, uh, mom and dad's, uh, or my dad's truck and my mom's car, that ash from St. Helens. So, question in chat, have I been to Roswell? Yes, but not that Roswell. Different Roswell. There's uh, other Roswells, but not New Mexico. That's on my bucket list as well. I want to go there. I like to go the week of the big uh, UFO festival. That's my goal one day when I can retire. And uh, hang out, travel the world, travel the, the back roads of the country. It's my goal. So a pretty cool list, 12 uh, different places. I, you could have added. So here in Ohio, we have, uh, I won't go too far into detail, but it's called the uh, Sasquatch Triangle. There's uh, three cities, uh, three areas that uh, basically border this triangle. 
triangular area. And in one of the corners uh, is the Salt Fork State Forest. And at the lodge at the forest, which I've been to a number of times, uh, is home to, I think, normally two, maybe three events, uh, conferences, conventions that uh, take place there. I've gone... Uh, camping there quite a few times. I finally got my kayak out there. It's pretty dangerous for kayaking in some parts because these people, they ride these pontoon boats and they don't pay any attention to where they're going. They steer with their knee while they got a beer in one hand. Uh, so it's a little dangerous, but a uh, fun trip I had. Got kayaked like 18 miles of that horseshoe-shaped uh, reservoir down at uh, Salt Fork. And uh, plenty of deer. There are so many deer there. The deer are running around the parking lot of the lodge in the middle of the afternoon. That's how many deer there are in that area. And there's a, a primitive camp. So I stayed in a, that's kind of embarrassing to say, but, you know, a paved parking spot and a you know, nice little grassy spot to put my tent up. Well, I mean, I was kayaking. I just needed a place to sleep. And it was expensive being a state forest. But there is a primitive camp um, deeper in the park. And it's actually called Bigfoot Ridge. You should have put that on the list. It's pretty cool uh, as well. So we're going to hurdle from Bigfoot. And we're going to go uh, from our tour. We're going to keep the uh, we'll keep the travel theme going on. But we're going to go to Scotland. And every time we talk about the Loch Ness Monster here on the show... I know some people roll their eyes or say, good grief, we're talking about this thing again. Uh, but uh, at least when I do talk about it, sometimes I mention how important the creature is to the local economy. Or at least the local folklore behind the creature is to the local economy. And obviously the world is uh, anywhere that has tourism as uh, one of their main facets of their economy is hurting. And of course, Scotland is no different. Uh, they're uh, looking for tourism. People, you know, people want to get out. They want to take their holidays. Uh, so visit Inverness has put together a one minute commercial, hoping to spur tourism back into the area. It's kind of cute. Uh, it's a clever commercial that includes uh, actual people that live in the area, so actual locals. And they're trying to tell a story behind their own personal sighting. And it's always like, oh, my grandfather or my uncle or so-and-so's neighbor. It's just kind of funny the way they do it. Uh, and it's filmed in some well-known and well-visited areas around the lock. And yeah, there's a few, yeah, they try some funny things with, the way they put it together, it's it's kind of cute the way it's edited. But, uh, yeah, you have to check it out. You can look it up. Loch Ness. Uh, visit Inverness commercial on uh, – you can you can Google that. Can I say Google? Can I, Jeff? I guess I did. Um, yeah, they have a statement. What is that statement? So come out for Nessie, but stay for the history activities. And other stuff. Something like that. Other attractions. Uh, so keeping the Loch Ness Monster theme going. This is probably pretty much the biggest story. And I, I think it's uh, 
I really found this story interesting because it touches uh, a few different aspects of the scientific world. And there's a little bit of irony to this, which I caught on right away as soon as I started reading the story. And I'll share that with you. Uh, the Loch Ness Monster. So you've probably seen some of these famous photographs, especially the the uh, surgeon's photo where the looks like the head's sticking out of the water. Oh, yeah, it was it was fake. It was fake. Uh, taken uh, a long time ago. But yes, fake. And we typically, when we think of the Loch Ness Monster and sightings of the Loch Ness Monster, we see that head out of the water. That's what we assume. And a lot of people think, uh, you know, this is a, a dinosaur or a dinosaur era creature that's existing still hanging out in the loch. And there's also been some photos of, um, of fins that look like a plesiosaur. No, it's not a dinosaur, but it's a plesiosaur. It's a water-based uh, creature from millions of years ago that supposedly is still hanging around this one lake in Scotland. Nowhere else in the world have they really seen one. Unless you count the, uh, the one over there in um, British Columbia, Vancouver Island. We'll talk about him, but... Um, so, and it's weird too, because if you go back to the 1930s, the creature was, uh, thought to be a little bit different. It actually was out of the water and walking around. They found what they thought were footprints of the Loch Ness monster. And now we just think it's just this plesiosaur with a long neck and a uh, short tail. And of course, those four fins that it has, uh, but now... The uh, science uh, may prove us wrong that our thought of what we think we see actually be wrong. We're actually proving ourselves wrong. So Dr. Paul Schofield, a curator of uh, Canterbury Museum in New Zealand, has released some information on the study of a fossilized elasmosaurus, which is a, a type of plesiosaur. There's like five dozen names for the same creature, pretty much. Uh, the study revealed that the extinct creature would not have held its head up high due to the study of the inner ear of the fossil. So the inner ear alone keeps this uh, creature from holding its head up. So, you know, we, again, we automatically assume that the Loch Ness Monster holds its head out of the water, and that's how it looks around. That's how it looks for people kayaking, keeps away from those uh, tour boats. You know, and we see the, you know, the ripples on the water. Maybe it's its back or whatever, uh, but it doesn't, or these creatures, I should say, didn't help hold their head up. So that's kind of weird. Uh, he says the labyrinth, I should say, quote, the labyrinth of the ear works best when tiny bones within are able to hang unaffected by gravity. For this reason, the position of the inner ear within the skull of an animal reveals a lot about how an animal habitually holds its head. We have examined the inner ear of the elasmosaurus and determined 
that their resting position was with the head horizontal to the body or even well below the body. This implies that they probably did not frequently hold their heads up high, unquote. Aw, poor creatures. Just need a confidence boost. Maybe they can hold their heads up high then. So this just has to do with the inner ear. So the findings were made by doing a CT scan of the Elasmosaurus's remains. And it's thought that the creature would have uh, more than likely hung its head down in order to feed on the seabed. I was a little confused um, by this because I thought that that was already established, you know, from what I had read, what I've known on the plesiosaur. I did a lot of research, of course, coming into cryptozoology when you're talking about uh, one of the top animals in cryptozoology being the Loch Ness Monster. I did a lot of research on that potential angle. If it could be a plesiosaur, you should know what you're talking about with these things. So, um, and of course, the hypothesis surrounding a potential living Elasmosaurus uh, is uh, it's new. It's it's not new, like recently new, but uh, you know this uh, story kind of broke in the 1930s, mid 1930s. It became you know world renowned as soon as they started building roads around Loch Ness. Um, but it was. Um, was it Dennis Tucker? He was a zoologist at uh, the London Natural History Museum. Uh, I believe he was fired for his belief in 1960. So it was in the 50s where this really kind of launched as a hypothesis that, hey, maybe Loch Ness is a plesiosaur. Um, and Tucker passed away in France. In 2009, uh, Dr. Schofield added, quote, they have been uh, they have these enormous teeth arranged in rows. Like a grippling iron, it has been hypothesized that they floated on the surface and dredged the seafloor, blowing the dirt through their teeth and leaving just the clams. Thus, their feeding method dictates the neck length. It's just like the giraffe, but in reverse. Unquote. Uh, and of course, when asked about the Loch Ness Monster, uh, being a scientist, of course, he admitted he's not a believer in the creature and says that this new information is further proof that the creature is nothing more than a myth. And I thought it was funny because, well, again, at first I thought, well, wait a minute, I thought we already knew that, that the the uh, plesiosaur, the head wasn't, you know, something like a, an antenna sticking out of the water. It was just meant to to go after fish. And it wasn't, uh, you know, we see this creature, we think it swam extremely fast. But, of course, a long head like that isn't going to be very aerodynamic in the water. I should say, is it water dynamic? I'm sure there's a word for that. Uh, but it wouldn't be able to maneuver in the water with that long long neck. So we got it wrong when looking at the Loch Ness Monster. And of course, what the, the irony behind that 
if uh, anybody knows anything about uh, dinosaur era, uh, there was a uh, it's called the Bone Wars, but it wasn't really a war. It was really between two researchers um, who kind of were going against each other, basically, for research and trying to discover new animals, which is a pretty, pretty, uh, um, made a lot of money back then, discovering these creatures, discovering new bones, and uh, these two colleagues uh, went against each other, and the, uh, what was his name? Cope and Charles Marsh, uh, Edward Drinker Cope, and Othiniel Charles Marsh. So those two uh, researchers uh, kind of went against each other. And one of the discoveries was the plesiosaur that kind of drove the two of them uh, apart. And, you know, we talk about the story, how we're getting the neck wrong. And what's weird about that is, is one of the biggest argument of pieces of the bone wars was the fact that uh, Edward Drinker Cope rushed out his uh, finding of the uh, plesiosaur to the world by what he thought it looked like and his drawing, his design, his arrangement of the newly discovered bones had a short head and a very, very long tail. So he got it wrong. And that's what, uh, there for a short period of time, uh, people believed that the uh, Loch Ness Monster, or the, not the Loch Ness Monster, but the uh, plesiosaur looked like. So we got it wrong once. We got it wrong again. Here now, uh, thinking about it. But um, yes, dinosaurs have been discovered for a long time, but really their study really pretty much began in the uh, late 1800s. Well, I guess you could say mid-18, about 1860-ish is really when the explosion of finding dinosaurs took uh, took hold. And of course, they were found uh, hundreds of years earlier, and this is, of course, what led to uh, dragons and stories of all these other things that we weren't sure what we we're looking at here. These giant bones on the ground. What are these things? Um, but anyway, back to the, the Loch Ness Monster and this plesiosaur. So find the discovery of the, the neck uh, could put a dent in this creature actually being a plesiosaur. And really the, the creature... In, if you were to take one and throw it in a time machine and bring it back, it wouldn't survive in the cold waters of the lock anyway. Um, the environment has changed, and obviously this creature didn't adapt uh, back then to to now, so that's why it's not around. And I find it highly unlikely that only one specimen would have survived you know, 60 million years. And you would have also thought that it would evolve from what it was to something different, you know, would it still have that long neck? Would it still have that short tail? Maybe it's different. Uh, if it evolved granted, you know, some creatures don't evolve. 
you've got uh, um, you know alligators that have remained fairly unchanged for millions of years. Um, who else is out there? Some other creatures that really haven't changed too much. Coelacanth, eh, I guess you could say that. Uh, a few animals that haven't evolved much, but a lot of animals have just evolved completely different. So you'd think you'd see that if they did exist. So I don't know about the good Dr. Schofield saying that uh, this proves that the Loch Ness Monster is nothing more than a myth. It just means that it may not be a plesiosaur as what some people think. Hmm. We'll see. You know what? And I've said it before. We had a story a few years ago on the Otago University study of Loch Ness, where they actually took samples of the water from various depths all up and down the loch, looking for uh, environmental DNA in the water to see what creatures actually existed in and also around the loch. And, of course, uh, they didn't find any kind of DNA of any large creature or any unknown animal. So you'd, you'd have thought right then and there, that's the, uh, that's the death kneel. That would be enough to say, hey, look, we found no DNA. Science says there is no Loch Ness Monster. But people still believe. They still believe. And, you know, even this latest story of, of science beating down the Loch Ness Monster, doesn't matter. There'll be a sighting next week. You heard it here first. Uh, people still believe in it. They still think they're going to see it. And that expectation is still going to be there. And it doesn't matter what you say, what you do. Science could prove it. And I've said it before, you could drain the lock for 50 years, fill it back up, and people are still going to see it. It's just not going to go away. It's a, it's, a, it's a hardened legend. It's part of the culture. And it transcends any physical creature that could ever be found or not found. The, the legend is bigger than any real animal, I would say. And yes, I'm hungry. Doritos sound uh, wonderful right now, especially the old, the old school ones. Let's see. Other news. So we're going to go from Scotland, but we're going to stay in the UK. And uh, we're going to solve crop circles, if you don't mind. Uh, crop circles, it's, it's interesting stuff. We don't really talk about it too much. It's a really cool, uh, just different story. Nobody knows really what's going on there. Although uh, most, if not all, crop circles are created by people. And it seems like anymore, most crop circles are created by advertising agents than anybody else. Um, sometimes they're mysterious and they require a little more investigation or you just kind of have to wait somebody out to admit that they faked them to uncover the truth. Uh, strange lines and partial circles have popped up in a dozen fields in the United Kingdom over the last few weeks, prompting some further investigation. And police recently investigated one of these strange patterns in a field near Todwick in South Yorkshire in the United Kingdom. 
uh, Sergeant James Shirley, don't call him Shirley, uh, came to a startling conclusion. And it doesn't have anything to do with aliens or UFOs. He states that the circles were created kind of by people, but actually by machines and not farming equipment. Uh, they were created by what, uh, what the story says, off-road quad bikes. I call them four-wheelers, where I'm from. Uh, but off-road quad bikes, I guess that's what they call them over there, I, I don't know, uh, that were being used to illegally pursue and hunt rabbits and deer at night with lurcher dogs while on private property without permission. Um, I don't think I've ever seen anybody hunt deer on a four-wheeler. I don't think that would work out too well. Uh Rabbits, maybe. It would probably help out a little bit. Uh, but deer? I don't know. be a little confusing. Especially if you got more than one person on a off-road quad bike. Uh, so he said, Sergeant Shirley said, uh, quote, hunting with dogs is poaching. It's also criminal damage to thousands of pounds of crops, unquote. A uh, video was taken of the damage of the field by drone. And, of course, the search is on to find these poachers and these quad bikes. Got to find the quad bikes. Truth is out there on the back of a quad bike. Uh, so I'll post in chat a picture an aerial view from a drone of these strange lines. Looks like the Nazca lines, kind of. A little bit. You squint. And uh, look sideways. Uh, cattle mutilations. That's an interesting question. So a question in chat is, are cattle mutilations done by people too? Well, some of them... Yes, a lot of what we think are cattle mutilations are actually natural death of cattle. And what happens is they, when they die, just like when we die, if we're, let's say you're sitting on your couch at home and you pass away and somebody finds you five or six days later, uh, well, what happens is all the blood in your body settles to the lowest point due to gravity. So once your heart stops, all your blood uh, just it falls and death isn't uh, so people think that death is an event. Uh, death is something that just happens. Well, he died. Well, death is a process. There's a lot of different things that happen uh, to your body uh, one by one where your body shuts down, different organs shut down, different processes shut down, uh, your brain shuts off, uh, your heart can continue to beat even though you're dead and your brain can function there for a while without your heart functioning. So death is just weird. Uh, but once your heart stops, all the blood drops to the lowest point. And what happens when a, a cow dies in a field, uh, the same thing happens. All the blood will pool toward the bottom of that creature. And you don't really see them, but they're there. They're everywhere. Uh, go ahead and 
go out to a field and die and find out what happens. There's bugs everywhere. And they'll actually start where the blood is. And they'll kind of tear open micro holes in the, uh, the skin or uh, just naturally blood will drain from a cow into the ground. And so it'll seem as though all the blood has been removed from said cow or cattle um, when it when it hasn't. And when the body begins to die, gases inside try to escape. And sometimes uh, can't go through natural holes in the body, so it creates their own, and the body will rupture. And it can create tears in the body that look like they were created by surgical equipment because it's just a tear in the skin from gases trying to escape. So it looks like somebody was operating. And, of course, once the skin is open, that invites all sorts of other scavengers into that body to uh, remove intestines, remove organs, uh, snack on things. Different animals, different bugs, different creatures enjoy different parts of cows. Just like we like, you know, steak and sirloin and, you know, the different cuts. So you didn't think you would learn all this stuff when you tuned into the show, did you? About death and decay. Uh, But who's to say? You know, the 70s, there's a huge rash in these... uh, Uh, Cattle mutilations, and granted, that's probably when a lot of them did happen with people, Uh, people on horseback, uh, people with helicopters uh, were killing these cattle. If you've watched uh, Yellowstone, you kind of get a little bit of a of a feel for that kind of era, the competition for land and resources and, uh, you know, a lot of cattle competition back there for all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, cattle mutilations goes down in history as being associated with UFOs, but a lot of it is people and politics and money. Of course, money is the root of everything. Not just evil, but also good things and also cattle mutilations as well. Well, it was fun. We're talking about cattle mutilations. I know you guys, you guys like that stuff too, which is good. Anytime I see it in the news, we talk about it because it's really mysterious. It's really weird. Um, let's see. James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah, I forgot I was going to talk about this. So kind of avoided it for a while because I was terrified. Honestly, terrified. So sure, a lot of you remember the Hubble Space Telescope. Still remember it, still see pictures of it every now and again. Well, not of it, but from it. And of course, if you remember when that thing launched, well, there was all sorts of issues. Uh, they had to launch uh, up into space to fix it, and it was all blurry. I think, was there petroleum jelly on the lens or something? No, just kidding. It was just, it had issues, and they had to fix it. Um, the James Webb Space Telescope. However, uh, was not fixable. It was sealed, and uh, there's nothing you can do if it launches and it's messed up. That's it. It's it's uh, it's just it's going to join the Tesla floating out in space. At that point, there's nothing you can do. And after years of delays, we're talking 
years. You might, might as well say decades of delays. And uh, going slightly over budget. What was the initial budget? Like $500 million? I think it was $500 million. Uh, they spent, eh, give or take, $10 billion with a B on this thing. $10 billion from a $500 million budget. Wish I had that kind of money. Uh, but yeah, it's finally parked in space. It's kind of a weird way to say it. Um, the story that uh, I kind of got some of this information from is from NPR. And it's uh, James Webb's Space Telescope finds its final destination. I thought that was a little severe to use final destination. But, uh, yeah, it's there. It's, it's in a spot called the Lagrange Point. There's a city in Texas. There's a song by ZZ Top, Lagrange. Uh, but Lagrange Point, or the L2, there's, I think, what, six Lagrange Points? And Lagrange points are basically where uh, gravity is. Uh, so it, it's at a place where the Earth isn't going to pull it not only toward itself, but not around itself as well. So like the moon, if I don't know. Some people don't believe this, I guess, but I'll explain it the best I can. Uh, the moon goes around the Earth, and the Earth goes around the sun. I know some people don't believe that. And the Earth is not round. It's not flat. It's spherical. Gotcha. Uh, and the Lagrange point is a point at which the, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, there's other stuff floating out there, believe it or not, way out away from the Earth, uh, so far out that it won't be pulled in and it won't go around the Earth, but it, it'll float along with it. So it's going to float around the sun at a distance from the Earth. So we're kind of dragging it through space, uh, but not dragging it toward it or around the Earth, if that makes any sense. And it's on the outside of the orbit of Earth, so it's away from the sun. So it's on the outside. So uh, it needs shade. It's not completely shaded by the Earth, but being further away, uh, it's going to get less baked by the sun. It needs to be cool. And it's so cool, it's got to be negative uh, 370 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, you know, I said it was cold here in Ohio. Uh, it's 10 degrees Fahrenheit here. Uh, I can't imagine another 380 degrees colder. That's uh, That's cold. And it needs that to be... Uh, to operate, it's got like cryogenic stuff on it. It's to cool it because of the uh, the way it takes pictures. That's the best way to do it. And uh, we're waiting for it. It's getting fired up. It's going to be, uh, you know, the the tense moments of it unfolding, and well, actually, the launch. I mean, you can even go before that. You know, when they were transporting it, so they had to transport it. Uh, via ship, they couldn't fly it because uh, between the airport and where it was going to launch, the bridges couldn't hold 
the uh, space telescope. So they had no way to transport it from the airport. So they had to put it on a ship, go through the Panama Canal, float it uh, to the launch pad there in South America and uh, launch it. And you know rockets. It's a it's an explosion forcing the, the rocket outward upward and rockets don't fly so let me clarify something too rockets don't fly straight up everyone wonders when they see a rocket launch well why do they go crooked it's the best way it's the fastest way to get out of earth's gravity they're spinning spinning around and and then going around the sun so yeah can't go straight up can't go straight up just wouldn't worry it'd be struggling anyway uh this telescope james webb space telescope is now kind of in a uh, weird phase you know we uh waited so long for it to to finally get ready to launch then this trip a couple week trip to uh is it new guinea to uh, to launch and then the launch itself and then uh, took a few weeks to get out where it's at to park they put it in park. They put the chocks on the wheels, and it's uh, just kind of floating. And it doesn't just hang there. It has to make uh, small changes or it could get left behind. So it's got little uh, jets on it. That's why it's not going to last forever. It's, I think, only 8 to 10 years if they're lucky. And it's going to take uh, about three months. They're going to start aligning the mirrors, activating the instruments, Adjusting the mirror segments, uh, as well as testing out the uh, the instruments before beginning to download data. You got to kick the tires before you light the fires, and make sure it's all working. But man, I cannot wait. And of course, it's uh, way more sophisticated than the iconic Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, it's going to be capturing pictures of the very first stars in the universe. We're going to go back in time with the telescope. That's how sensitive this thing is. And it's uh, also going to study the atmospheres of planets orbiting around stars outside of our own solar system to see if they might be, yes, might be habitable or hopefully inhabited. And like I said, I can't wait to see what this thing um, you know what they capture. It's gonna be really cool. I cannot wait to see some of these images that uh, that we're gonna have. And what else we got? Yeah, that's it. Oh, it's about time about quitting time anyway. I was gonna uh, one last thing. I mentioned. Jeff Bezos in a, in a comment about Amazon. Um, Jeff Bezos, this guy is crazy. You know, I wish I had all this money just so I could throw money at things. It must be fun to be so bored. You just got to, you know, turn around and spend millions of dollars on things. Um, that's a slow day for him. You know, a billion dollars is a decent day. So, if you heard this one, Jeff Bezos 
uh, is assembling a team of top scientists. And what he's trying to do uh, is develop immortality technology. Immortality. It's uh, He's created a new, uh, there's a former launch uh, on, what was it, Wednesday? He launched this thing. I thought it was like, wait, is it April 1st? Uh, it's a thing called Alto Labs, which he officially launched on Wednesday. Um, yeah, it's a uh, billion dollars. He's got floating around for this thing. And he's going to try to create, I don't know if it's going to be a pill or a concoction or I don't know what it is, uh, to uh, try to become immortal. How do you prove that is actually working or not working? How long would that take to prove that something is immortal? I don't know. But he's also got Yuri Milner, who we've talked about here on the show. He's generally associated with Bigfoot stuff. Uh, Yuri Milner is teamed up, uh, the Russian-Israeli billionaire. Um, hopefully uh, trying to help develop some anti-aging or immortality technology. It's crazy. Well, I mean, what could possibly go wrong with all of that? I don't know. Oh, it's Doritos time. Definitely Doritos time. With that, I'll bid you good night. And I will see you next week. But for now, keep your eyes in the skies. Can't wait for those pictures. Uh, keep your ears open in those woods. And also keep the hair standing on the back of your neck. What is that behind you? You might want to take a peek. Always keep your mind slightly ajar, but don't let your brains fall out. And above all else, you you know how the song goes. Don't stop believing. For the Paranormal News Insider, this is Dr. Brian D. Parsons reporting. Paranormal King Radio Network at ParanormalKing.com